Welcome to the Cornerstone Church Podcast, where you can hear messages from our church that will directly impact your life. Our hope is that by listening to God's Word, your life will be transformed by the power of His truth. To learn more about our church, visit cornerstonebv.org. Here's another message from Cornerstone Church. Good morning, beloved. There are a few subjects in the scripture that a lot of pastors would like to try to avoid, and I get one of them today. It's all about humility. There you go. Well, because speakers and preachers and people who are in the public eye live their lives, especially pastors do, preaching weekly in front of audiences, regardless of the size of that particular audience, eventually those men and, and uh, those leaders who might also be women in the public eye uh, eventually have to deal and confront with their own temptations to pride. There's a story of Charles Spurgeon, who's the greatest, probably one of the greatest preachers of the 19th century. He's a pastor in London, a very large church called Metropolitan Tabernacle, still there, by the way, still a faithful preaching church, held 6,000 people in London in the late 1800s. This is a, this is a you know, at, at, any, at any age, that's pretty heady stuff, when, especially when you consider that most churches in America uh, are about 100 people or fewer. Well, people came from all over the world to listen to Spurgeon preach. Uh, there was a delegation one time from the United States. Press came from a number of newspaper sources to hear him preach. It was just a common occurrence. Um, one day, as, as he got done preaching a particular sermon, a man had, came up to him and, and just gushed all over and said, you are the best preacher in the world. You've got to be the best preacher of all time in history. The sermon that you just, just preached was the most phenomenal thing that I've ever heard. Spurgeon said, yes, I know. The devil told me the same thing as I walked down from the pulpit just a moment ago. He was always on the lookout for the temptation to pride. Now, we're like God in a lot of ways, aren't we? Um, we uh, are drawn to people who are humble. They're accessible. We, we like them because they often give credit to other people for their successes that go on, or they're willing to take the responsibility for a failure, perhaps, in a group of uh, people or a corporation. One of their best qualities is that they're teachable. They really enjoy learning from other people and finding out about things that they admittedly don't know about. But there's also the other side. And like God, we we don't like pride very much, do we? We just, we just is a narcissistic society. We just, oh, that guy's proud. That woman is obnoxious. I mean, just stay away from them. You know our problem with pride? We just don't like it in other people, and we don't see it in ourselves. Not very often. And so, like God, we have this antith- antipathy towards pride. God actually hates pride. At the root of all sins is the sin of pride. And remember, it was pride that got Lucifer kicked out of heaven and Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden because they refused to worship God. That's what pride uh, does. And, And pride opens up the door to so many other kinds of sins that would poison the soul. Uh, sins like envy and bitterness and slander and greed. And if you look in Romans 1, all sexual sins are rooted in the sin of pride which refuses to worship God. Pride rejects God's care for our lives. 
And it robs him of the glory he receives because we depend on him. Our dependence on God gives him glory. And when we don't, when we say, no, I'm going to do it my own way, we rob God of that glory. It's like we paint a target on our back and God is ready to shoot. But we can develop the the virtue and the quality of humility, and that's the good news. God's grace can help us to cultivate what God loves in us, and that is humility. So we're going to look at two parables. They are uh, similar because of the last statement that Jesus makes in both of them. So we're going to put them up on the screen. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along in Luke chapter 18, starting with verse 9, and then we'll flip back to verse uh, chapter 14 and look at uh, verse 7. So in, in Luke 18, we see the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and here's what Jesus said. He also told them a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They treated others with contempt. And here's the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself uh, will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted." That's the first parable we'll look at. The second one is Luke 14, starts in verse 7. Now, he, that is Jesus, told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you uh, be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come to you and say, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with some shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes to you, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, and then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's the, that's the lesson. That's the point. That's the whole point of this sermon. Humility. Humility gets God's attention. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we thank you that your word gives us instruction in and, and something that, that would seem really unimportant, except it's hugely important because it's about how we relate to you. So I pray, Father, that you will give us insight into your word by your spirit and, and you will help me to say those things that need to be said and forget about those things that I don't need to say so that your people may be edified and their joy increased because of your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so the point is pretty clear and pretty explicit. God highly values humility, and the implicit point is that he, he, is, uh, he is telling us that pride is dangerous. So here's my proposition for the morning. Humility gets God's attention, and humility keeps God's attention. Now, I'm taking that from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, and here's what that says. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my home, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? 
that what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand have made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. Do you want to have God's attention? Do you want him paying attention to you this morning and any, and any morning? Here's, here's what he says. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in heart and trembles at my word. And there you see humility gets God's attention. So let's unpack these two parables and see how they might work in our lives. This first parable is, I've just kind of put the title over the top of it, The Way to Salvation, and that's humbly receiving atonement for sin. This is the Luke uh, 18 uh, parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Uh, in verse uh, 9, he, he tells this parable. Notice who he's talking to, the audience. These are people who trusted in themselves, and they had contempt for other people. You see, pride isn't just going to stand alone. It's going to do other things like dismiss other people. So who are all these people in Jesus' audience that he's talking to? Well, he's, he's on his way on a journey to Jerusalem for his crucifixion and his resurrection and ascension. And so along the way, he is talking and giving lessons and talking to people as he meets them. And he's gathering people with him as he goes. And so into this crowd, there might be a few people who are interested, followers. They want to know more about who this, this rabbi is. And, and then, of course, there might be really close-in disciples. Uh, the 12 are there, the 12 disciples who later became apostles. And there might also be some Pharisees in the crowd. So when Jesus is addressing those who trust in themselves and treat others with contempt. I suppose everybody in that crowd thought he was talking about the Pharisees, uh, but he wasn't. He was talking about a very common universal problem of the human heart, which is pride, which leads to contempt of other people. So what's the setting here of the parable? The setting is very important. It's taking place at the temple, and on a very particular time of day at dawn and at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, there would be a worship service and a prayer service for the people of God to gather. And at that service, there was a very precise ritual that had to take place as people were invited to participate. The priest would come and stand before the people at the right time. Another priest would have brought the blood of a slaughtered lamb, and the priest would then sprinkle the blood over the altar that was outside of the uh, main entrance to the tabernacle behind him. And then there would be priests who would clang cymbals and blow trumpets and a psalm would be read to all the people. And at that point, the priest would stop. He would turn around, and he would go into the sanctuary, not the inner part, but the outer part, where there was another little altar for incense. And he would throw incense on that burning coals and, and the altar, and that would symbolize the prayers of God's people ascending to him. And he would also trim or light the candles that were in there. Now, while he's inside doing that, and nobody can see him doing that, all of the worshipers are outside by themselves, and they're praying personal prayers, lifting them up to God. And that's when Jesus brings us a focus on the Pharisee and his prayer. Now, look at the manner of his prayer in verse 11 and 12. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice in a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You know the interesting thing about the word I in English? In the Greek, it's the word ego or E-G-O. And he uses that word five times. He's got a pretty big ego. 
And he's standing before the Lord, and he's, and he's telling God, you should be thankful that I'm around you. Look at all the wonderful things I've accomplished for you. I, I'm not like all of these, these unwashed mobs over here, and especially like that tax collector. I praise you with my wonderful life. I give you tithes of everything that I own. He doesn't just tithe on his income. He tithes every time he buys something, he tithes it to the Lord. That's the idea. And he also, he also says, you know, Lord, I fast so often. I, I fast twice a week. The Lord never said that a Jewish person had to fast two times a week. What it said was, you fast once before the feast begins and once after the, fa- uh, after the feast is over, uh, you know, whenever those feasts are. This man is feast, uh, fasting 104 times a year. Now, what's he doing? What's he doing with this prayer? He's communicating to everyone around him, if you really want to know what righteousness looks like, live up to my superior standard. Take note, if you can. Well, then Jesus focuses our attention on the, fair, on the uh, tax collector. A whole different kind of prayer is going on. Verse 13, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And the other was the Pharisee. Didn't even name him anymore. The tax collector's manner is one of deeply, being deeply distraught over his sins. It says he's beating his chest. That was something that uh, professional mourners would do, as uh, women would do, uh, at somebody's funeral and burial, and they would wail, and they would beat their breasts in a sign of being so deeply distraught. Men didn't usually do that, but this man is doing that because he's so deeply distraught over his sins. I can imagine when he was standing there afar off, he was standing away from everything, but he was watching everything, and he saw the blood of the lamb, be sprinkled on the altar, he understood that his sin was so deep it needed a sacrifice. And it destroyed him. And his prayer was a recognition for mercy. Now we need to pay careful attention to two words in this parable. In verse 13, the word mercy, and in verse 14, the word justified. The word mercy here isn't the same word that is often used in the New Testament for mercy. It's a different word. It's used only twice in the whole New Testament. And it's the word atonement. It could be very easily translated atonement or the covering or the covering seat. Now, you have to think back into your Old Testament and understand what this is about. The Ark of the Covenant, which stood in the tabernacle and later in the temple, contained the Ten Commandments of God. These Ten Commandments stood for everything that God demands from his people and everything that they and we have always broken and not obeyed. But over the top of that was this lid, and it was called the atonement or the covering lid or the atoning seat of mercy because what God was communicating to his people is, yes, I know you broke the law. That's the way that you are. You're born that way. But I have mercy for you if you trust in my atonement, my atonement, the one that I give you. 
I will give you the way to atone for your sins. You don't need anything else to do that. I will provide for you the sacrifice that's necessary to expunge the record of those sins against you. And eventually, of course, that was Jesus. God provided Christ in order to be the perfect, never again repeated atonement, covering and wiping out and expunging our debt of sins. Our souls are cleansed from unrighteousness on the basis of Christ's own sacrifice. That's the mercy seat that this this tax collector is asking for. And then Jesus says, you know, it's this man who went down to his house justified. That's such a hugely important word in the Bible. It is like almost the central word of Scripture, justification. Justification. It's the most important word that relates to anybody's personal destiny. It is God's declaration of a great exchange that takes place. Justification uh, starts out with telling us some bad news, and the bad news is that we are born, a purpose of our creation is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But the bad news is that no one is born that way. No one is born wanting to know God or love Him or enjoy Him forever. Instead, the Bible tells us we're born alienated from God, we're dismissive of His commands, These are his standards of accountability, and we say, no, we have our own standards of accountability, and we we expect you to accept them. But God doesn't. You know, God's not like our favorite high school teacher that graded on a curve. It's either perfection or failure, and there's nothing in between. So if there's nothing in between, how in the world is anyone, how in the world is anyone ever going to be accepted by God? And that is the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. In fact, Martin Luther called that doctrine the the foundation on which the church stands or falls. If there's no doctrine of justification, if there's no way to justify sinners before a holy God, and that means there's no gospel, and that means no one can ever be saved, that means the church has nothing to say to anybody. So how does that work? How does that work? Well, as I said, it's a great exchange. It works as good news because we can have Christ's righteousness and he takes our unrighteousness on him. Imagine this. Now, you might have heard this analogy before, but just bear with me a little bit. You are on trial because you've been uh, a spy, spying against the United States. You've been You've been accused of treason and proven to be treasonous. You're, you're involved in um, uh, drug trafficking, and you killed a diplomat along the way. Any one of those things is cause for the death penalty. You've been tried, you've been found guilty, and now it's time for sentencing. But the judge does something interesting. He says, I'll tell you what, we're going to go into my chambers, bailiff, bring the prisoner in his little orange jumpsuit, and uh, uh, bring a court reporter. We're going into my chambers for sentencing. So you go into the chambers, the judge is there, and he says, I have to pronounce a sentence of death because you've been found guilty. Any one of those crimes would have brought a sentence of death. You are found guilty on all counts, therefore I pronounce a sentence of death. But I have an agreement here that I made with your lawyer. And in this agreement, you get to go free. All you need to do is to give me your orange jumpsuit right now. You're bewildered. 
So, okay, if that's, I can go free, no double jeopardy, never going to be charged in this again. Absolutely. You start to take off your orange jumpsuit, and you want to go to hand it to the judge, and you notice he's taken off his robe, and he's holding it out to you, his robes of justice. And he takes your orange jumpsuit, jumpsuit, and he says, here, put this on. He backs up. The judge puts on the orange jumpsuit. You put on the robe. He turns, the judge turns to the bailiff and says, bailiff, handcuff me and take me to the sentence of death on behalf of this man. That's a pretty great exchange. That's what Jesus has done for every one of us who trusts in him. The judge goes off to his death, and we get to go free. That's what the doctrine of justification by faith in Christ alone is all about. Don't let pride rob you of the great exchange that God offers you through his son. Now, let's look at the second parable in Luke 14, 7 through 11. If the first parable could be called the way to salvation by humbly receiving the atonement that Christ uh, offers us in himself, the second parable is the way of salvation. In other words, how do we live? How do we live? We continue to live in humility. Here's the parable. We'll look at it again. Jesus says, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, and that's what this is, it's a wedding feast, uh, don't sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you, uh, who is invited by him, and, and he who invited you both, will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to be taken to the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes to you, you may say, friend, move up higher. Or he may say to you, friend, move up higher. And then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. So here the setting is a dinner party uh, at, a, at a wedding feast. And there's an, another parable, actually, that follows this about the wedding feast of the Lamb. But in any case, Jesus is saying, look, you know, the, the, best, the best practical thing you can do when you go to a wedding feast if you want to be honored, isn't to vie for seats of honor. That's what these people were doing. They were looking at, you now where can I jockey to sit, you know, close to the person of honor so I get some honor, you know, shining off of them onto me. And Jesus is saying, look, don't do that. Now, I've done a, a lot of weddings in my time. And, it, and I always think about these, this parable here and the one that follows. And uh, um, I, I, you know how it is at a wedding reception when they have a full-blown dinner, you know, they have tables all around everything. And then they have, they have the, the, the head table where the bride and the groom will sit and maybe sometimes the, the wedding party as well. And I'm, as I'm walking into the rooms, I often think of this parable and I think, how ridiculous would it be if I just go right up to that head table and sit down next to the bride and groom? I mean, come on, I've, I've done the wedding. I'm the officiant here. I, I deserve some honor. Come on. Right? It would, be, it would be awful, just awful, right? They'd sit there and they'd look at me and say, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. And then, if you did that, the attendant at the reception would come over to you and say, um, excuse me, Bob, um, your table is over by the exit sign. Would you, would you, I'll show you where you can sit. Come with me. How embarrassing, right? In other words, where are we going to get our honor from? 
Are we going to vie and jockey for honor, or are we going to let God honor us? That's Jesus' practical application. When we honor God by humbly and gladly accepting God's place, in, uh, God's place for us in his kingdom, we are using up the box that he gave us. Now, I'm, I'm getting this idea from Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6. This is what it says. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Now, that could be lot in life, or maybe it's lot lines of a property. It's probably lot lines of a property. You know what that's like. There's boundary lines to the property that you live on, because the next sentence says, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I have a great heritage and a great property. So there's something about the lines of our life or a box. And inside that box, God puts stuff for us to have, to do, and to enjoy. So I have a box here. Some boxes are very pretty boxes. Some boxes are more like that box over there. But it doesn't really matter. What really matters is what's in the box. So God puts things in our box, no matter what the size, no matter the stuff that's in it. Some of you young ladies who are thinking about getting married may someday become a wife. Or maybe not. Perhaps God might gift you with the gift of singleness. But let's suppose that you do marry, and you want to marry the perfect guy, right? So God gives you the superhero husband. And there you are, the superhero husband and the gorgeous wife. And you know, you know that you know, there will be children in the future, most likely. But with that all comes, you, you need a job. You have to have, like, you have to earn a living. And so God will give you a way to get wealth. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 8. You have a way of getting wealth. God will give it to you. He prescribes what you should earn and all of that sort of thing. So that's inside the box. And there's other things inside the box too. Like, for example, you know, you'll, ha you'll need a house, but you've got to drive places anymore. We can't use horses, so we, we might get cars. I know it's very small. It's hard to see. But believe me, that's a car. Kind of a cool-looking one too, sporty. Uh, inside your box, there may be something really a lot of fun, like, you know, a flying horse. Pink, for your backyard. This year, inside everybody's box is coronavirus. Now, what are we going to do? You see, the point of what David was saying in his psalm, and the point of what Jesus is saying when it comes to honor, is it doesn't matter it really doesn't matter how big our box is or even what the contents of the box are. What matters is who gave us that box, who gave us the contents, and what do we do with it? We take responsibility for it. So the most important thing about our box is that in humility, we accept what God has given to us, and we do everything we can to honor him with it. So if God so values humility and pays attention to those who are humble, how are we going to cultivate that in our lives? Wouldn't you agree this is a really self-absorbed culture that we live in? I mean, how many selfies do you have to take of yourself and put on Facebook? How many? I don't think I have uh, not even one. I don't like looking at myself anyway. 
So how do we develop this, this virtue that in our culture, is, first, think of it this way. First of all, we have pride pushing us from the inside to push ourselves forward, and then we have everything in the culture telling us, do the same, do that, just give in, you know, follow your heart to push yourself forward. How do we develop humility in a culture and in an atmosphere and with a sin like that so deeply rooted in us? Well, I have four ways that I think will help. They've helped me, and I, and I continue to work them so that I might deepen this, this understanding and practice of humility. The first one is ponder the humility of Jesus. For this, I want to look at Revelation 5, verse 5. Meditate on Christ. Look at what John is saying here. He, he is now seeing this amazing sight in heaven, and he sees God, the Father, sitting on his throne, and he's got a scroll in his hand with seven seals in it, but nobody can open that scroll, and John knows this is an important scroll. This is about the future of the kingdom of God and world history and where it's going, and there's nobody who can open this and reveal the contents of it to us. And he starts to break down and weeping and crying. And then an angel comes to him and says this, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered. So he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw not a lion, but a lamb. A lamb standing as though it had been slain. And he went and he took the scroll from him who was seated on the throne. Look at, way, look at the way that John is presenting Christ to us. First of all, he says he's a lion. I don't know about you. You know, they've got the title Kings of the Jungle, right? The, the king of the jungle, lions. And they are majestic, aren't they? You know, those big full manes, and they walk around. They kind of strut a little bit, don't they? I mean, after all, lions walk around in prides. <laughs> Duh. And so they're strutting around. They're powerful. They're fierce. They are protective of, you know, the female lions and cubs and everything. They're strong, and they're mighty, and they run fast. They'll tear you apart with just one swipe. John would have thought that was the lion was going to, op to grab that scroll. But when he looked, he saw it wasn't a lion at all. It was a lamb chopped to lions. It was the lamb, the lamb of God who had been slain. So that's the one who conquered sin, hell, and death. That's the one. He was weak, weak-looking, meek, lowly Jesus said of himself he went to the slaughter like a lamb he never even opened his mouth when people were jeering at him and saying all kinds of horrible things he kept his mouth shut and he committed his soul to the father think about these two images Jesus is the lion strong ferocious and he's humble enough to be a lamb who will lay down his life for people like us Secondly, think about your own pride. Pray about your own pride. You know, if you don't think you have any pride, start praying right now. Because you do. We all do. And we all struggle with it. If you don't think you have any pride, just think about the next time somebody says something really nasty to you and offends you deeply. How do you respond? Do you respond like the lamb or like the lion? Pray about your pride. Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24 say, Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me, just plop the word pride in there and lead me, lead me, lead me out of it, lead me from that slavery into the way everlasting. What we need are two kinds of scriptures to help us to do this. First of all, the preventative kind, that is the kind that warn us against pride. Proverbs 26, verse 12, for example, says, do you see the person who's wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than them. Or, Proverbs 16, 5, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Detest. You, you don't want to be on that side of God. So be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. So those are the preventative scriptures, but we also need remedy scriptures for encouragement. And James has one. He says, but God gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Ask for more grace to kill that beast of pride. Third, prepare yourself to think rightly about yourself. A lot of times we think, you know, the way to really develop humility is just for me to go around and saying, you know, I really am a jerk. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just an idiot. I know. You know, I say that to my wife, and she looks at me and she goes, yeah, you are. No, we, we, that is not humility. That's just pride in disguise. Humility means thinking rightly about ourselves. It doesn't mean thinking less of ourselves. It means thinking rightly of ourselves. In Romans 12, 3, this is exactly what Paul says we are to do. And that is, let me find it. It's in here somewhere. I know. Oh, there it is. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought. In other words, don't be conceited, but think sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And here we can have confidence before God without conceit. Humility starts with a sober self-estimation. We think of ourselves rightly. We think of ourselves, we've got a box. We've got a box. God gave us a box. My role in life is to use up that box to the best of my ability for God's glory. Now, how am I going to do that? Well, I'm not going to do it in the strength of my own power. I need some help. I need some, I need some strength from a God who has covenanted to me that he's going to give me what I need in order to do everything that's in that box. So when you wake up in the morning, you've got to say to yourself, I am adopted by a great king who rules and reigns over all things, especially well and especially me. And I am redeemed by a price that's far too precious for God to squander or forget about. He said he'd never leave me as an orphan. He would, has given me the gift of his spirit. He's going to be with me all day long. And, and I, I just believe that everything I have received, I received from God. Is there anything, Paul says, that you have that you have not received? The clothes you're wearing right now came from a good and gracious God. You may have thought you went to Macy's to buy it, but it was there, and the God, God gave you the money, and he helped you to buy that stuff. Everything we have, including the breath that we take, is a gift of God. Everything. Paul said everything. Is there anything that we have that has not come as a gift? The answer is no. It all has. And that's kind of freeing in a way, because God gave it to me. So I don't need to fret and worry over it. I just need to be a good steward of that stuff. And then finally, practice humility. The following verses there in Romans 12 are basically the filling up the box with faithful activity, just as our bodies have been made 
have uh, many parts and each part has its special function. So it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we belong to each other. What I'd like you to do right now is turn to somebody that you're sitting with or someone around you and say, you know what, I belong to you and you belong to me. Go ahead, tell them that because this is what the Bible says. I belong to you and you belong to me. And in his grace, God has given different gifts for doing certain things well. Now, if you have the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well and so on. In other words, everything that God has put into your box, do it well. Do it well. So it's very simple. Four things. To develop humility and deepen it in our lives, ponder Jesus. Ponder the marvelous counterpoints of who he is. Lamb, lion, king over all who came down in humility to walk among us, lived in poverty. Just think about those counterpoints in Christ to see how humility is supposed to look. Ponder Christ. Pray about your pride. Prepare yourself with an accurate estimation of who you are. Don't put yourself down. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying think about yourself soberly. Fair estimation of yourself. And finally, practice that humility. Practice. Put it into practice. It may not be perfect, but just put it into practice. And the more you practice, the deeper will your understanding of humility go because it works out over a lifetime. And as you deepen your humility, the aroma of Christ is put on every one of us by the Father so that everyone can know who Jesus is just by our lives and our humility. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, humility doesn't come natural to us, Lord. Pride, pride is far more natural to us than humility. And so this morning, Father, we pray that you will keep us and keep our hearts from swelling up in pride. Humble our hearts before you and replenish it with your grace. And Father, when we are tempted to think highly of ourselves, we ask that you would grant us to have discerning eyes to see the crafty power of our spiritual enemy tempting us in this way, that we might defeat him and we might renounce pride. Help us to be gracious, to see ourselves in sight of you, in light of you, and to think rightly about ourselves so that pride will wither and perish from our souls. We thank you for this, in Jesus' name. And everybody said. Thank you for listening to the Cornerstone Church podcast. To listen to more messages or check out our church, please visit cornerstonebv.org. If you are looking for a church home in the Blackstone Valley, please join us on a Sunday morning at either 9 or 11. We are a gospel-centered church where our lives are transformed by the power of God's word.